Hey friends, this is Natalie Irvin and welcome to the ICU podcast where we explore how we can find significance in the unseen work of leaders and learn to be intentional to truly see others in our everyday lives. I can't wait to share with you, so let's get started. Today's scripture is Psalm 139, 7 through 10. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Hey friends, welcome back to the IC Podcast. I'm so excited because today I'm interviewing a dear friend of mine, Kane Weaver. Kane is a psychiatrist. He's a brain injury advocate. He's a stroke survivor, an exercise enthusiast, and a Swiftie, most importantly. Uh, Kane and I have known each other since our time at Georgia Southern University. And he and I served on the SOAR team together, which was part of our orientation at Georgia Southern. And it was a really great time where we spent lots of time together, got to know each other really well. And he just became a really special part of my life. Um, We recently got to reconnect at our friend Emily's wedding. And I knew that he would be the perfect guest because he's been through a lot and persevered through a lot. And I'm just excited for him to share his story. And I'm just happy that you're sitting here right now. So um, that in and of itself is a miracle. And so I'm just, thank you for coming on. I'm honored to be able to let you share your story here on this platform for our listeners. Yeah, thank you for having me. I was super excited that you even asked. Um, It is definitely really an honor to be able to even be here to have this conversation with you. And like you said, been through a lot in like the last five years. And so to be here, to be able to talk about it and to be doing as well as I am, it's really an honor. And I'm really happy and excited that we get to have this conversation. Me too. Me too. So um, let's go back. Tell us where you're from and then a little bit about your time at Georgia Southern. Okay. Yeah. So I grew up in Ringgold, Georgia, which most people don't know. So I always said Chattanooga, Tennessee, Um, but kind of moved around Georgia, lived in Savannah, Georgia for a while. And then, like you said, we went to college together at Georgia Southern University. And we were on a leadership team that uh, my freshman year, I was a freshman whenever I met you. And um, Mm -hmm. we worked together on that leadership team. And that's really where all these opportunities with leadership and different activities I got involved with kind of serving the community, serving the college and kind of the work that we did uh, launched and eventually landed me into med school and uh, residency, which I just finished. Wow. So I remember when you came in and we were interviewing you for the SOAR position and we asked, you know, a lot of random questions, but we also wanted to know, like, what's your major? What do you want to do? And you said pre-med. And I was like, oh, that's so cute. They all say that. And then they never make it. And but you, you, I mean, put us all to shame because you sure did. And you had a really difficult road to get there. But um, but you're there. And that's just so incredible. Um, what made you want to go into that field? I will. I've kind of a nerd. I've always enjoyed science. And so there's that aspect of me, but I also wanted to do a job where I was, I knew I was helping someone. And so to be able to take these skills of like thinking kind of critically in a scientific way, but then also making an impact on someone's life. Um, Because like Mm -hmm. all through Georgia Southern, like I was always involved with volunteer activities. I went on some of the trips, like give kids the world. I went to, Mm -hmm. I've gone to Honduras and helped with medical missions there. And so 
medicine just kind of made sense. It's what made sense. It was really difficult, but I also enjoyed kind of the journey of getting through everything. Um, I don't know how, even without having the stroke and everything else, I don't know how I got to this point because it was really hard and it was a really long journey. I was 18 years old whenever I decided in college, like I'm going to be a doctor and I just finished my training and I'm 33. (laughs) (laughs) A time well spent. Time well spent. spent. I wish it wasn't on interest on student loans, but yeah, time well spent. Yeah, right. Exactly. (laughs) That's, That's incredible. I mean, it's just such a journey. And I think anybody in medicine, it's like once you finally get there, you can't believe you've arrived because it's so much building that anticipation, building that preparation, serving in so many different capacities to try to figure out what you want to do. And you chose psychiatry. So how did you decide that that was the field that did you always want to do that? Or is that something that developed as you were going through the program? Definitely was. So my dad works in mental health. He's not a psychiatrist, but I always grew up with him working in mental health. And I would say like actively, I don't want to do what he does. I don't want to work in mental health. But I think at the end of the day, like the apple doesn't fall too far from the tree because, you know, we were always involved helping, you know, he would maybe need help with, you know, mowing this person's yard who like can't take care of their yard or cleaning their house or um, different kind of activities where I was growing up and it kind of transformed Mm -hmm. me into seeing, you know, the needs that these people have and also just knowing the impact that you can have by just doing really simple things. But really what got me interested in it was um, my last year at Georgia Southern, uh, I did a a five years at Georgia Southern instead of four. I did a victory lap because I had (laughs) two majors. I had two majors. And so I was finishing my second major. And um, in that last year, I worked as a behavioral health technician at a after school program with teenagers who struggled from substance abuse. And Mm so in that year, um, that's whenever I really got interested in mental health. And then, you know, I went on, got accepted to medical school, went on to med school. And in the first couple of years, you know, it's all the sciences that you're learning in the mm-hmm. first two years. And so neuroscience and behavioral science were my two favorite sections that we learned. And naturally, whenever we moved to the clinical years, which are the third and fourth year, I was really drawn to working with the patients who had mental illness. And mm-hmm. oftentimes in the hospital, when we were like dividing up the patients, they would be like, okay, who wants this person with schizophrenia? And like, no one would raise <laughs> our hand. But I'll, I'll take them. You know, <laughs> and I, 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 I always enjoyed it. And it was fun, funny. I always had a good time with those patients. And um, mm-hmm. so that kind of like, it was a natural fit. Yeah. I, that's so special too, because I think it takes someone with a, unique personality, somebody that isn't afraid to step out of their comfort zone into things that are uncomfortable. Um, And I think you're the perfect person for that. And I know that you probably learned a lot in the past five years, even more so being a patient. Um, So tell me, okay, you got to medical school and Mm then when Tell me about when the stroke happened. Like, where were you at that point in your in your career? So I got through, I finished medical school, I graduated, okay. and then I matched okay. into residency in psychiatry. Um, okay. And so I matched into residency in Charlotte, North Carolina. And that residency, for people who don't really know, you know, it's more years after medical school. We all have to right. do it. Some people go to do family medicine. Some people become a surgeon. I went to do psychiatry. This is where you do mm-hmm. your psych. This is where you do your specialty training. 
And so I went to do psychiatry in Charlotte, North Carolina. I was in my first year as a resident, uh, which is called your intern year. Mm -hmm. And I, that you work like crazy. You work all of, you know, I worked even as an emergency room doctor one month. I worked as an internal medicine doctor one month. They kind of have you all across the gambit. It's kind of just so you have Mm -hmm. your exposure, um, and also kind of meeting the needs that the hospital has. Um, so intern years are really tough year for everyone. Um, because you're working a ton um, Mm -hmm. and not always in your specialty. But I made it all the way to the very end of my intern year. And I actually took my very first vacation day. I was super excited for it. I had (laughs) We got 10 days a year. We got 10 days. And I had held on to all 10 of those days. I was so excited. So I took my first vacation day and I went home to visit my mom in Savannah for Memorial Day weekend in 2019. And I, you know, we were going to have a beach day. Everyone was coming to Savannah, like all of our family was. It was going to be a good long weekend. And I went to go work out that morning and I had a brain arteriovenous malformation rupture. I felt like I was working out and I felt the pop in my head. And I like immediately, as soon as I felt the pop in my head, uh, my left arm dropped. And Mm -hmm. in that moment, I mean, I was 28 years old. Yeah. I recognized that I was having a stroke, but I also was at the same time in shock. Like, am I really having a stroke right now? This, like, yeah. this, this cannot be true. You know, like, especially like I just started working out and I wasn't doing a hardcore workout. I was doing right. like some dumbbell rows, you know, nothing crazy. Yeah. And, um, I like kind of like, it got really hot under my skull. I felt just like a really mm. big heat sensation and my left arm was still like completely paralyzed. I kind of looked around the gym and I was kind of like, in that moment, you know, making like microsecond decisions. Right. And I was looking, I was like, do I trust anyone to call 911? Or what do I do? You know, I right. was partially in shock that I was, I was in shock. I was having a stroke, but I also yeah. was like, this can't be real. And yeah. I decided in that moment to just like bust it out the door and like run like out. And, you know, I remember mm-hmm. the YMCA girls being like, have a good day. Thanks for visiting. And I was like, yeah, <laughs> thanks for having me. And, Mount to uh, collapse. With, with my left arm hanging by my side. And <laughs> oh I like, I, as I went out the doors, I called my mom. You know, I knew she was like a mile down the road. And yeah. I was like, hey, you've got to get to the YMCA. I'm having a stroke. Um, I'll mm-hmm. meet you at the car. And I was walking to my car. And as I was like quickly walking, my left leg then went paralyzed, ended up collapsing mm-hmm. in the parking lot. And that's where my mom found me. And of course, she called 911. Uh, thankfully, it was all happening very quickly. I remember whenever the ambulance got there, and I remember them like quickly throwing me in and calling a code stroke back to the hospital, which ironically yeah. was where I trained as a med student. Wow. And um, I, the last thing I remember is just like the back door of the ambulance opening and the ER doctor mm-hmm. who was evaluating me, I had worked with him as a student. And I remember him wow. asking me to lift my left arm and I just said, I can't. And then mm-hmm. I blacked out. That's the last thing I remember. I was in a medically mm-hmm. induced coma for two weeks after that. I, they had to do, perform a life-saving surgery. It was They told my family, like, I wouldn't live. They said I wouldn't Mm -hmm. make it. And then miraculously, thank God, I had a really good neurosurgeon that was on call that day, and he saved my life. And um, Mm -hmm. in order to do so, he had to remove the right half of my skull, and he had to go in, stop the bleed. And thankfully, I mean, I've talked with him about this after afterwards, Mm -hmm. of course. And um, he said, I'm very fortunate because, you know, it's kind of like if you think about your skull as being like a fixed container, like, you know, if you fill a bottle of water up 
you can't keep filling it whenever the water's full right. and the bottle will burst. Your skull kind of yeah. works the same way. You know, my the bleeding had ex- extensive bleeding inside my skull, and it was pushing my brain downwards. And if it had pushed any further, it would have crossed the center of my brain that controls breathing. Mm-hmm. And he was like, you were just like seconds away from dying. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. And so I, that, that, that's just the beginning. And so then I – I um. I survived the surgery, of course, and uh, which was a miracle in and of itself. And yeah. I was placed into a medically induced coma for two weeks. And whenever I was taken out, they told my family, like, just so you know, like, people who have this extensive brain damage, like, they typically need to live in, like, assisted living facilities or have, like, all hands on deck, like, at all times. Like, right. it's not going to be the same whenever he comes to, if, if, yeah. if you know, he makes it. And so... Yeah. Um, Thankfully, that wasn't the case. And um, whenever I woke up, though, I was paralyzed, like completely on the left side of my body, left face, left arm and left leg. And that was something that I would have to be uh, transferred to a neuro rehab hospital in Atlanta uh, to Mm -hmm. further work on where I stayed for months on the inpatient setting. Hmm. Wow. That's I mean, and I I still remember that day, too, because they called us, you know, all of your friends and. I remember getting a call, I think from Caitlin or somebody, and she said, I don't think he's going to make it. He just had a stroke. And I'm like thinking, this can't even be real. Like it it didn't feel like possible because you were so young. You were in such good shape. Like Mm. you were just, I feel like at the peak of your health, you know, and it just didn't make any sense. And I feel like that it was just no, like there's no way. Cause you have so much potential. Like it's not. Yeah. Tiny. No, <laughs> it was, it was and, so unexpected. Oh, so unexpected. So crazy. And everything, like I had worked so hard to get to that point in my yes. life where I was finally a doctor. Yes. And like, right as soon as everything in my life was like launching and kind of taking off, it was all like kind of just removed immediately. Yeah. 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 So tell me about your time at Shepherd. Like, what did you, cause you were at Shepherd, right? Mm-hmm. I was. For that therapy time. And tell me about what you learned about being a patient instead of a doctor. Oh gosh. I, was, I can go on for a long time about this, but I, I'll summarize it briefly. So from Savannah, I went from the narrow ICU there. Uh, my, the right half of my skull got sent to West Virginia where it stayed in a freezer and I, <laughs> yeah, so I, so it went there. That's apparently where they collect them, uh, keep them for you until you're ready. Yeah. Okay. Until you're ready for it. And, um, so I went to the shepherd center without the right half of my skull. And okay. so that meant I had to wear a helmet at all times, mm-hmm. um, because you know, there's nothing protecting your brain on the right half. Yeah. And so as a patient, it was really challenging because, you know, you know, I've been told up front, like, you probably won't be able to move the left side of your body, um, like mm-hmm. your left arm, left leg, like that's kind of gone. Um, the left face came back pretty quickly, um, which was okay. good. Um, as a patient, it was really challenging because initially I was just in so much pain. I mean, I literally, they had sawed the right half of my skull off. Right, right. And like, it, it doesn't even sound. No big deal. Like, yeah, no <laughs> big deal. So I was just in a lot of pain. Yeah. Um, and then like, I think emotional pain too, because like you said, yeah. I had worked so hard to get in the best shape of my life and I was so yes. active. And so like, I care more, I think about physical activity than probably most people. Mm-hmm. And like, that's what was taken from me. Like was, I now have not just like half my body paralyzed being waist down, it's half right. like straight down the middle. Um, and so that was taken and I had like, 
at first I remember not being able to move any of that side of my body. And that was really emotionally taxing. Um, but then slowly like things started to kind of click, like I, my left hand started like kind of, I could hold my breath and I could focus on my hand and I could think like, just like trying to get my brain to make the connection, like move, like, you know, Mm. move. And like, at first it would like be like little jumps. And this is of course also with the assistance of like people there at the hospital who were helping me make this happen. And I would sit there and like, just think, and I would have to hold my breath so hard just to get like one finger to, you know, Mm. to move. And it went, it was felt so long in the moment, but like eventually like the, the hand movement did start coming back and then it's like, okay, like that's where the, I think hope kind of everything shifted. So up until that point, mm-hmm. I was really distraught that my whole life had just changed and yeah. like that I probably wouldn't move again. Um, and then we start seeing these little micro progressions of like, oh, Kane's finger now moved two fingers, you know, on his left hand. And it's yeah. like the celebration. It was a celebration of every single accomplishment uh, yeah. in that recovery period. And so um, it went step by step so slowly. Um, and it continued to progress until I finally was able to walk with a lot of assistance. Um, mm-hmm. But as a patient, the difficulty in that, you know, whenever I was training, I would go into medical, uh, not into the patient's room and be like, hey, can we talk, blah, blah, blah. And it would be early mm-hmm. in the morning, of course. And they would scream at me. And, I, you know, I didn't quite understand. <laughs> I understand now. Like, it's like, as a patient in the hospital, literally, someone is in your room every second. They are yeah. always coming in and out and always making noise. Like you're not sleeping. Hmm. Um, or if you do sleep, it is the worst quality sleep. And right. you're also not in the hospital because you're like, you know, living your best life and doing well. You're like in a lot of pain right. Right. and it's miserable and yeah. you don't, it's not ideal. You're going through a tough time already. And like the hospital right. is not like the most therapeutic place to go through that. And so no. I have so much respect for the patient role because I, didn't recognize I knew it was hard like I can conceptualize before that is sure. difficult that that part was easy for me to get I get that it's hard to be the patient mm-hmm. but you don't really get it right. until you go through it like you you don't and mm-hmm. it was just so incredibly challenging um yeah. to go through all of that and it, there's no break there's no break right. like, so it's like you can have like tough times and like but there's always people who are like, okay, you know, like you can escape from it. There's no escape. It's in your face 24 right. seven for as long as it is. And for me, that acute period of time lasted for a half a year yeah. I was in the hospital. And so for half a year, I was dealing just constantly nonstop with all of this. And that mm-hmm. was really difficult. So from a, from a perspective of going from physician to patient, I have such a significant appreciation for the patient role yeah. um, because it's so challenging. And it's changed the way I practice today. Yeah, I can see that for sure. And so during that time that you were at Shepherd, um, you were making progress, but Mm -hmm. how did you keep yourself from being like completely defeated? Like on the bad days, what would you tell yourself? Did you have something that you told yourself? Was it your mom? You know, who, who kept you going? Because I just can't even imagine that. In the initial period, for sure, I I can't even take credit for it. It was my family. It was my friends. Like, I got a lot of love from everyone just kind of bombarding me with, like, you know, uplifting messages. And, like, Mm -hmm. even, you know, Survivor. I had to interview to be on Survivor multiple times before Mm -hmm. that. And even Survivors, like, reaching out and, like, you know, doing all these things. And so, like, there were a lot of just positive messages that were coming to me in those moments. And a lot of 
as we got, like I said, we had those little moments where I'm starting to move my fingers. And then it's like, I have this huge crowd of people supporting me. Like, and Mm -hmm. that's where I was like, I was like, okay, this is going to keep getting better, but it's up to me to put in the work and do that no matter how hard it is. And I was like, I cannot, I know I cannot live like this. I like, I know what I can and can't live like. And so I need to take this momentum that all these people are giving me and do something with it. And so I, I just kept pushing and thankfully, you know, the neuronal connections in my brain, uh, were not damaged. They were damaged. They were damaged, but not to the extent that I couldn't make it happen because some people have these and you know, they can't make that connection. I'm thankful that I was. And so in those moments, journaling was super helpful. Uh, journaling mm. was really good. I have a lot of journals in, my, in the other bedroom, just kind of like That's filled with accurate descriptions of how I was feeling. Like if someone said something that was really hurtful, which happened um, actually more often than not in the hospital, mm. um, I would write down those things and I would write down how it made me feel um, mm. in that moment. And I would actually be like, oh, I would use those as fire to be like, I'm going to prove this person wrong. Like, you know? Yeah. Uh, I was told multiple times, like, you will not go back to being a physician uh, to the point that they even were offering me like full term disability and it would forgive Mm. my student loans from med school, but I would have to be on disability for life. And, you know, at that point in time, there were not many people who believed that I could get back to being a physician. Um, But I believed in myself, my family and friends were like, he can do this. And that's all I Mm -hmm. needed. And so I think I'm just really embracing the support system that you have. And thankfully I have a really good support system. Yeah, you do. You do. Your family's yeah. awesome. <laughs> I love them. Yeah. Um, so tell me about the transition back to normal life. So after you were released from Shepherd, you still had quite a bit to kind of deal with in your life, yes. even when you went back to school. Uh, you know, your residency. Yeah. So tell me about that process. So whenever I left the hospital from Shepherd, whenever I say I was like walking, it was barely, I was using a walker and mm-hmm. um, like, or I would use a wheelchair. Like it would, I was, I was, I would, compared to where I was when the stroke happened, it was much better, but it was not like, it was not light years better. Yeah. Um, and so I went back kind of to the real world in pretty rough condition. And I don't think people like nothing really prepares you for that transition from being in the hospital where you have support 24 seven as annoying as Mm -hmm. it may be. Um, But, and you're with other people who are going through similar conditions. I was on a brain injury unit. So I was with a lot of other people who had brain injuries and, you know, you're with all this support specifically for that. Mm -hmm. But then you go to the real world where, you know, you walk outside and like, obviously I'm not walking well, I'm not moving well. I had lost a significant amount of weight. Uh, I still, you know, at that point in time, I had just had my skull reassembled uh, months mm-hmm. after it had been taken out. And so I have these scars, like I, I looked terrible. And, you know, you go out to the real world where, you know, it's not there to help people with brain injuries. It's, you know, it's mm-hmm. the real world. And so you, it's a really rough transition because I wasn't used to just like so many people looking at you and trying to be like, mm-hmm. oh, what happened to him? You know, a lot of times people will look at you and think like, oh, you know, oh, he broke his leg. It's easy to see a broken leg and be like, that's why right. they can't walk well. For me, the injury is inside the brain. And so mm-hmm. people would stare and look and I didn't realize just how often you would get asked like what happened. Mm-hmm. At first I was like, I don't know, it just kind of really was a big transition. Because um, yeah. I, if I would see someone with a disability, I never really thought to ask them what went on but 
I can tell you, I get asked at least six to eight times a day. I still get asked, um, even though I've made significant progress physically. And I, I embrace it with kindness. Honestly, a lot of times people think it's my ACL that was injured. And I take that as a Mm. compliment. I take Mm -hmm. it as a big compliment because if you think that I had my ACL injured and that's just what's up, then I look really good. You're doing great. I'm doing great. Yeah. If someone came up to me and was like, you look like you had a major stroke. You look like you went through four (laughs) brain surgeries. You had to be in the hospital for six months and like learn how to walk again. I would probably feel pretty down. So yeah. (laughs) I mean, it's, it's crazy though, what people say and do in situations and you're like, why did you think that that was even socially appropriate? But I mean, I can see where it would just be really overstimulating too for you to just go from being where you're supported into like everybody's living their life and here you still are and you're trying to make sense of, okay, then how do I get back to that? Because I know that's where I want to be. Yeah, everyone's living their life and your life just got destroyed. Right. Like, you know, my sandcastle just got wiped out by the tsunami and I got to rebuild everything. Yeah. I got to rebuild it. And so for me, I kind of looked at it as a challenge. I was like, okay, like, you know, I was told I wouldn't get back to work, but I'm going to go against that. And I'm going to Mm -hmm. take, I'm going to take a test to see if I can go back. If I have the cognitive ability to be a doctor. Because I was like, I want to finish residency. What else am I going to do with all that year, all the years of knowledge that I had? What am I going to do with it? Yeah, exactly. Um, and so I did. I took it. I took the test and I passed it. And I was going back to residency, but right. So a year mm-hmm. late. I was out of residency for a year, and okay. um, I passed the test. I was good. And right before I was going to go back to residency. Um, we did a brain scan, like a brain arteriogram to check things out, make sure they look good. You know, they kind of yeah. monitor those for the first few years. And mm-hmm. my first one found more of the arteriovenous malformation. And so I had to have a fourth brain surgery uh, to remove that. And so that was right before residency. And literally a month after that surgery, I went back. I started residency. Wow. Yeah. Mm. And so dealing with all of that is kind of weird because I don't know, like looking back at it, I don't know how I got through that. I really don't. Yeah. And I don't know how I had a fourth brain surgery. And then a month later was back in residency taking care me of me. Me neither. Um, yeah, me neither. But it did. It happened. I just knew I had to keep going forward. So yeah, I went back and it was really hard to go back to residency. I don't, I don't think people, they didn't appreciate how difficult it was for me. I, I know they um, didn't. Um, they could, I don't think it's, possible for them to appreciate how hard it was yeah but I, I know they didn't appreciate how hard it was for me to go back and change the role back from being the patient to the doctor which was a mm-hmm. really difficult transition yeah absolutely yeah. and tell me about like were you did you feel like okay I'm fully equipped I feel like I'm with it like I'm ready to rock and roll. And were the people around you supportive of that? Or were they nervous? You know, how were their, there, I guess, reactions to you coming back? There's a huge stigma with brain injury uh, where it's like, oh, you've had a brain injury. Like, you know, and there's reason. There's definitely reason why. But there's it's like, oh, you've had a brain injury. Like, oh, the stigma is that people with brain injuries cannot perform high level jobs. Mm-hmm. And. I knew that that stigma existed. Uh, it exists for a reason. Um, yeah. But at the same time, I passed my test. I went back. Mm-hmm. I felt like my family was like, he's still the same person. I, right. My friends were all like, this is still Kane. I was mm-hmm. like, I'm still myself. Like, it, yeah. I feel cognitively with it. It's going to be a challenge like it was before. Mm-hmm. It was challenging before my stroke. I was like, but right. I know that I can do this. And I think that I can make an impact on healthcare. 
having gone through what I did, I think I can make mm-hmm. a really significant impact on healthcare if I go back and yeah. and show them that I can do this. And so people were nervous. Uh, I'm not gonna lie. Like attending physicians that I worked with, the first one I worked with was just abs- like she didn't say it, but she was absolutely <laughs> terrified um, because you know this person with a major brain injury who just came yeah. back and just had a brain surgery a month ago is now taking mm-hmm. care of her. Yeah. Um, and so I could see it. They were supportive. Um, mm-hmm. There were certainly people who were really supportive and in my corner, and I am so thankful for. I'm thankful for that. There were a lot of those people, um, yeah. and that that made it a lot easier than it could have been but there were definitely several people who took a really strong opposite direction with that and that is probably what made residency so difficult for me is just having you know you have these connotations of people with a brain injury can't perform this job well and then you have a few people who go really strongly against you and continue to Mm -hmm. challenge you and so I was like I'm gonna show them that I can do this and I just took all the anger that they gave me because it wasn't just words Mm -hmm. and actions that they did the way that they handled certain situations with me. I took all that anger and I studied every single day. I would come home from work. I studied every single day. We took our Mm -hmm. practice board exam, you know, at the end of this last year, I scored in the top 16% in the United States. Um, I just, amazing. I took this anger and my patients loved me. My patients absolutely loved me. Um, we have a great relationship. I took really good care of them. I, I knew that I could be a really phenomenal doctor and I knew that yeah. I could connect really closely with my patients having gone through what I did. I'm very open about it. You know, I can't yeah. walk well uh, because of my stroke. And so it's obvious. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not something I hide. I also in residency, I guess we glossed over that too. In my second year of residency, I was actually working in a patient's room and um, it was during COVID. And I remember like whenever COVID was really bad, I remember being in their room and asking them questions and then all of a sudden getting really hot and sweaty. And I was with, thankfully with the attending physician and mm-hmm. I was just like, I was like, I need to sit down on this patient's bed. I'm so sorry, which I, that's weird. You know, I'd never right. do that. And I, <laughs> <laughs> this poor patient, because I proceeded to, I sat down on her bed and I entered into a seizure. It was my first, I had a seizure mm-hmm. while I was in a coma, but that doesn't really count because that right. is kind of expected in that situation. But this was my first seizure, like, you know, over a year and some change later, I had my first seizure. I entered actually into the worst kind of seizure you can have, which is Mm. status epilepticus. And thankfully, the doctor was right there with me. She got nurses on board and got me to the, we were in the hospital working. (laughs) And thankfully, they got me into the ER really quickly. Mm. It was like 4 p.m. that day. I woke up at midnight intubated. And Mm. I, yeah, and I'm remember trying to pull the stuff out because I just like I went from you know we're talking to a patient right. and like, you know it's midnight and I'm yeah. like choking on a this air pipe they've got down my throat mm-hmm. and so that was the if that was the only one that would have been you know okay but I, that was whenever <laughs> my diagnosis of epilepsy was confirmed I had the status epilepticus seizure at the end of my second year and then in my third year of residency which is quite honestly, one of the busiest years because we work in Mm -hmm. seven different clinics and seven different locations. Um, I ended up hospitalized five more times and for seizures. And Mm -hmm. so I was diagnosed with treatment resistant epilepsy. And that made things really difficult because after you've had a seizure, you know, different states have different laws, but typically there's six months of no driving. Um, And so I couldn't drive. There was a year and a half 
chunk of time in residency that I couldn't drive. And so I was balancing not only all of this stuff that like residency, just the intensity of residency for anyone who goes through it, learning all these different things, but also with my own life struggles of just like having had a stroke. Oh, being diagnosed with a chronic epilepsy stays lifelong. It doesn't go away. And so um, being diagnosed with this chronic lifelong illness that has flares, you know, where you end up in the hospital and that's seizures are scary. I know, I know that you know this, but they're very terrifying because you, it's not fun to be somewhere and then wake up somewhere different or, you know, to wake up on the floor. I've woken up in the bathroom floor, you know, different things. And so it's (sighs) terrifying. And so I I was dealing with all of that as well. And then you throw on the different responsibilities of having to be in different clinics uh, at different locations like each half day was a different clinic location and having Mm -hmm. to navigate that with using uber and lyft which are really expensive and then by the way we're paid like pennies in residency so you're just like accumulating (laughs) debt after debt after debt and it's like i just have to get i just have to get through this i just have to get through this wow i mean because at that point how could you give up (laughs) Yeah, I was like, I'm going to prove these people wrong that have made me feel like I can't do it. I'm going to prove yes. all of them wrong, but then prove to myself that I can do it. And that yeah. was most important is I could prove to myself I can do this and I can do it better than other people. Um, yeah. Even though they've not gone through what I've gone through. So important. So important that like you felt that responsibility to yourself. Like, no, I can do this. Because I think that's when people really start to heal is when they're determined within themselves that they can do it. There is possibility. Your life's not over. You don't have to stop living. And I think that's something I really admired about you going through specifically epilepsy because I can relate to that. But I think that was one of the things that I looked at you and I was like, how, okay, I'm now in therapy because my child has epilepsy and how does Mm -hmm. he keep living and not just be totally paralyzed with fear. And so I think it's super admirable that regardless of what you've been through, that you're like, you know what, I'm not going to let that stop what I'm capable of. I'm not going to let that get me to the point where I'm scared to do anything because of what could happen. Um, I think it's amazing. Like, I, I think there's so much freedom in that. Um, and I've seen that in you, like being able to travel and you just moved to Tampa and I did, yeah. being on the beach. I'm like, gosh, he's, he's, he deserves it. You deserve it. And it's just incredible that you, um, have gotten to this point. I'm so proud of you. It, it, it is incredible. And I think being open and honest about it, you know, some people have told me like, I wouldn't tell everyone you have epilepsy and I'm like, mm-hmm. okay, well, there's two options that we truthfully have. I tell right. you. Or you find out. So which one do you want? Do you want a heads up? Because I have an emergency medicine that I carry at all times with me. I'm going to tell you so that if it happens, you can give it to me. So I don't end up in the ICU again. And so other people have been like, I wouldn't be as open about your brain injury as you have. I'm like, okay, well, it'd be great if it didn't affect my walking. But I don't walk perfectly because of it. And I'm not Mm -hmm. going to lie. You know, I Mm -hmm. had a brain injury. And I'm also... Why? Like I've passed my test. Yeah. I've done really well. Like I'm doing really well in residency. Mm-hmm. I'm doing really well with my patients. Like why would I not use this as an opportunity to advocate for those people who have gone through what I've gone through to show that they yes. can get back to their life again and really yeah. not only just like survive, but thrive and do really mm-hmm. well and kind of fight the stigma that exists. And I yeah. think 
you know, I've definitely pushed back against it. And I'm, mm-hmm. I'm happy I did because I'm back to where I'm at. Me too. And, you know, physically, I like I walk a lot faster than I did at first. And it's continuing to grow. It's, it's still a difficulty. It's a challenge. But compared to where I was, you know, one day at a time, I'm doing much better. And I physically I lost all my muscle mass, you know, while I was mm-hmm. in a coma and in the hospital. But I work out every day. I work out at 5 a.m. And then I go to work mm-hmm. and then I live my life and I do whatever I do the rest of the day. And mm. just as, as, if I, as if I did before my stroke and I put on most of my mass again. And I, yeah. I like the challenge. I like the challenge that it's given me. Some days I, I don't, but. Yeah, of course. Well, of course, yeah. there's always yeah. going to be some days, but I love <laughs> that you still continue to just care for your body and mm. keep pushing. Um I mean, now all you have to do is get on Survivor and you'll have met all of your goals. And that that goal even, I that was another thing that I had to come to terms with too. With epilepsy, some of the biggest triggers are not eating and not sleeping. And on Survivor, that's like pretty much yeah. the premise of it. And so that was another thing yeah. that happened in that period of time is I had like these death of my dreams. Um, it was a lifelong dream mm-hmm. to be on the show, but I... I found peace over this time um, with where I'm at because at the end of the day, you can't survive the day that you were going to die without Mm. paying something. Nothing is free. And for me, my mobility and then epilepsy uh, were the kind of the the trade-offs, if you will. If I'm like, hey, I want to live past May uh, 24th, 2019. Okay, well, then you're going to have epilepsy and you're going to have difficulty moving. And that was kind of, it was a trade off that I did not instantaneously be like, okay, this makes sense. Mm -hmm. But I had to accept that. And so some of my, like you said, some of my Mm -hmm. lifelong dreams like kind of died, but at the same time, other Mm -hmm. ones were born. And so it's exciting to see exactly where that's going. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, and I think that's something that, John's told me before when we talk about Harper and her future, and I get so upset because I'm just thinking, gosh, our lives are not going to be what I wanted them to be. We can't go here. We can't do this, whatever. And and the thing that he's always told me is, Natalie, like, everybody has limitations, Mm -hmm. okay? So when you're looking at all the things that you can't do, you're going to stay in the defeated mindset of... Our life is done. All of our dreams have died. All of them <laughs> like have we died. Can't, we, we can't take her to Disney World to ride roller coasters. It's not going to work out. Like, <laughs> but, but what can we do? And like what you said, there's beautiful things that you find in coming out of that place that you're now able to make peace with, which mm-hmm. is really a maturing in a sense. You know, like you are a totally different person now, but in a really incredible way. And yes. so even though you have limitations, how can you turn that and make it into actually it's given me a gift? Yes, you it know? has. And would I have one survivor? 100%. I would have one survivor. And Absolutely. <laughs> and, Are you kidding me? And and so this proves it. <laughs> right. I, I would have one survivor. And so I had to be like, okay, I physically I can't do this because my body won't allow me to, but so many other dreams I never have dreamt prior. Like, I, you know, Survivor was my dream because it, at the time it made sense. It was, I loved the show. It was great. But then yep. you have the death of it and you mourn the death of that for a period of time. Sure. But then you have really exciting new dreams enter and new opportunities and stuff that, you know, is coming down the pipeline for me that, I mean, I won't talk about it now because you wait till it happens and then you can, can say this is where this is where I was redirected yeah 
That's really awesome. So as we wrap things up, thank you so much for sharing and just being open and transparent with your struggles and then where you are now. And just, it's so inspiring. I think people can take so much away from your experience um, as a patient, but also now as a doctor and seeing your first patient on Monday. So that's just so incredible. (laughs) I love it. You've arrived. I've made made it. it. I've made Um, it. That's so cool. So I always ask um, all of my guests, how have you felt seen recently? So what's one way that you've felt seen? So one way that I have felt seen, uh, because, you know, a lot of times as residents, we didn't feel seen, um, appreciated. Mm -hmm. Um, And so the ways that we kind of navigated that with making sure we felt seen was whenever I went out to eat with my friends, we would always say, what's like something like, what are some wins that's going on in your life? Like, you know, it's Mm -hmm. kind of a moment where you can brag and it's not like viewed as bragging. It's kind of just like, what are these moments? What are the good things happening in your life? What do you have going on that like you want to say is like a win? And so for me, the way I felt Mm -hmm. seen is like with my friends, you know, they allow for this opportunity and we all mm-hmm. are able to talk about the things that are going on in our lives and feel like the wins that are happening and just supporting each other through that. I mean, like they're like, you know, like that is awesome. That is so exciting. Like them being just as excited as you are for what's yeah. happening in your life. And so mm-hmm. um, being seen, I guess in that way, uh, my fam- of course I graduated residency yeah. and my family and friends were just like so supportive and so excited because they, they, people know the struggle that it was for me to get through where I got yeah. to. And so they made me feel seen in the sense of like, they know how hard it was for me. They've seen the insides and outs of the whole process and struggle yeah. um, and appreciated me. And so a lot of that through there. And then one last thing I would just leave people with is like, you can make yourself feel seen too, whether you use it on social media or not. And you can be open about these challenges. You can be open about the wins as well. Um, but just be transparent mm-hmm. and honest. A lot of times people on social media only see the wins of other people. But on as mm-hmm. I've gone throughout this, I kind of was open about the downs. I've been open about the ups and just trying to be open about the whole process and just knowing that everyone yeah. is going to have the downs and the ups. And sometimes it's just your Absolutely. turn. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> sometimes it is your turn. And I'm so... <laughs> I'm so thankful that you're here. I'm so thankful you're alive and that you're thriving and um, that we get to be friends and get to still um, reconnect from time to time. So um, thank you so much again. Yeah, it's been so great. And um, thank you for just being here and dealing with my internet issues and, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the, trying to get together three different times, but right. um, we made we it happen. It, so. We did it. Happy late birthday too. I know. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. All right. So that's another episode of the IC podcast and um, another episode will be released next Friday. Thanks for listening. Thank you.